You can turn to John chapter 10. We read from verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to me. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will, find, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd. Who does not, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So this passage, um, other sheep that are not of the school I have, them also they must be brought in to hear my voice. That is um, the Bible verse that was uh, written when David Livingston's uh, death was written out in the news, missionary news, it went out, and this verse was underneath it. And so when a missionary Mary says that she read that and took it to heart, and from that she was being sent out, thinking of the sheep that are not of this, uh, not of this fold, not part of those who already know the gospel, but still needs to hear it. And um, no, I just wanted to start with that. Then, sorry, okay. So, I'm going to tell about missionaries, Mary Slessa. Um, back in 2018, when I first came to Frontline, uh, I was walking around barefoot most of the time, and then someone went to Dr. Hammond and asked him that it should be made mandatory for us to wear shoes during working hours, because that would look much neater. And thanks to Mary Slessa, Dr. Hammond said, well, you know, this is great missionary woman, walk barefoot most of the time, so I don't think it should be enforced upon the people at Frontline. So I'm very grateful to her for that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Robert Moffat, he was the missionary who translated the first um, South African Bible, uh, the Setswana Bible. And when he was visiting in England, he gave a message where David Livingston attended. And Robert Moffat said um, this quote that, Many a morning have I stood on the porch of my house, and looking northward, have seen the smoke arise from villages, villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. I have seen, at different times, the smoke of a thousand villages, villages whose people are without Christ, without God, and without hope in the world. The smoke of a thousand villages. And so these words rung in the ears of David Livingston. He was thinking of the smoke of a thousand villages. And he felt called to Africa, he followed a calling, and went. And much of the missionary journeys that he did was recorded in newsletters that was read all over Scotland. And one of the families that was reading these newsletters was the family of Mary Slessor. Her father wasn't um, born again, but her mother was. And she read the family these newsletters, and also newsletters from a mission station back in Calabar, up in Nigeria. And so when Mary was young, she was the second of seven children, just like Livingston. And um, when she was young, she and her brother Robert had dreams to, um, to go into the fields. Um, 
he would be the missionary and she would be his assistant. So Mary Stessa was born on the 2nd of December 1848 in Scotland. They had the Red Star at Aberdeen. Um, and then she was the second child. And later on, the family moved down to Dundee, to that red spot. So this was first the house they lived in in Aberdeen. It was a one-room house with seven children, so they were a poor family. And um, her father was an alcoholic, so he wouldn't be able to keep a job for long. And then, um, yeah, it lost it again, and the family was in great need again. And this was during the same time that there was um, industrialization and many factories were being built and many jobs were being created in Dundee. So when Mary was eight, the family decided to move over there. Um, but before that, her brother Robert, with whom she always had his adventures and dreams with about going to do missions, um, that brother of her passed away. So yeah, anyways, they moved to Dundee and here her dad promised that he would now keep his job, things would go better for the family. They'd be able to go to school and, um, sorry, yeah, and that, yeah, life would be much better for the family. But then, um, shortly after they were there, he was once again, he worked for a shoemaker, and then shortly after that, he once again was not able to keep his job. He started drinking again and so on. So sadly for the family, like, that hope kind of crashed down. And then um, Mary's mother was the main breadwinner, and later on, like they, there was much need, so they, she asked Mary to come and join her to work in a cotton mill, which was also what David Livingston did. He also grew up working in a cotton mill. His family was, um, how do you call it, uh, better well off, better taken care of, but um, he also worked in a cotton mill, so Mary had that in common with him as well. And yeah, since 11, she was 11, she was working there. And half of the day was working, and the other half of the day was, uh, she was allowed to go to the school for everyone, who, all the children who worked at the cotton mill. So she really enjoyed being able to learn how to read and how to write and so on. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the pro for her in that. Then she came con got converted. Um, one Sunday morning, after Sunday school, she and her friends were walking um, in the streets. It was in the winter, so it was cold. And there was an old lady who called them into her house. And she said, um, you can come and sit at my fireplace, and I baked some scones. You girls are welcome to come. So they couldn't resist that. They went in. And um, then there was a, fi a fireplace. So the lady um, poked into the fireplace, and they went um, some of these sparks up. And then the lady said, The Bible tells us that hell is like that fire. It burns forever and ever. And those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will spend their eternity there. Their bodies will be seared, their throats parched, but there will be no way out and no end to it. Do you want to burn in hell, Lassie? That's what the lady asked her. And so Mary was slightly freaked out and she said, No. <laughs> By the way, don't use this way to do Don't Don't scare people into the kingdom. <laughs> but this is what this lady did, and God used that. So the lady said, well, you need to repent of your sins and ask the good Lord to forgive you. Do you want to do that? And Mary said, yes. So the lady prayed with her, and that night Mary felt more peaceful than she could ever remember. And she knew that... Um, she started with fear of hell, but now she had no fear at all, and that God was watching over her, and that gave her this joy and this peace. So the next Sunday at Sunday school, um, she told the teacher she wants to become a Sunday school assistant, which she did, and then later on she became a Sunday school teacher herself. And um, yeah, she, she grew up, continued working in the um, cotton mill and on Sundays, and. Um, even during week evening, she would start Bible studies and Sunday school at different places. And one of those was um, in the slums close by where she lived, um, which was a bit more of a dangerous area. There was gangs walking around and so on. So one um, afternoon, she went early to that class to write out the lesson on the board. And then a gang of boys came and they kind of grabbed her by the arms. And the leader of the gang came to her and 
he took this, um, what do you call it? Like a metal piece, a sharp metal piece with a twine attached to it. And he started swinging it above her head. And he threatened her, he said to her, um, you need to stop teaching Bible stories here. We don't want to hear that. We want none of that. You must promise that you will stop. And she said, well, you can do whatever you want with me, but I won't stop teaching the Bible. And so he came closer and closer to her, and she just didn't budge. And then the piece like, cut over, cut her, um, what do you call it, her forehead open. And so it started bleeding. And then the guy stopped. And he, was, he put it away. He's like, okay, you guys can leave her alone. And um, then she wiped it away, and she said, well, now you had your fun. Why don't you come into Sunday class and see what it's all about? And so him and the group of people came in, and uh, the, the group of boys, and he got converted during that Sunday school lesson. And many later, after years later, he was still one of the people who was praying for her. So that was one of the first converts that uh, we read about. And so then Mary went on giving Sunday school, and then one day she bought a missionary uh, newsletters, which she always read, and in it stood that Livingston has died, um, and that his body ar arrives in Southampton. This was um, in 1874, and by now Mary was 27 years old. And so she, she thought of David Livingston's words, um, where he said, I don't care where we go, as long as we go forward. And she thought of herself and what she was doing, and she thought, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going forward. And then also written in that newsletter was the words, um, I beg to direct your attention to Africa. I know that in a few years, I shall be cut off from that country which is not open. Do not let it be shut again. I go back to Africa to try to make an open path for commerce and Christianity. Will you carry out the work which I have begun? I leave it with you. And then that verse from John 10 we read, Other sheep I have, which is not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. So Mary was thinking about it, she prayed about it, and she remembered of her um, dreams to go and do missions with her brother. And so this settled a case for her. Um, she told her mother and her sister, they were rejoicing. Um, but by now her father and the two younger sisters also has passed away from Pneumonia or tuberculosis. I don't know which one of the two. But yeah, so she told her mother and her sister, and they were happy for her to want to go. And Mary prayed that she would be sent to Calabar. So she applied at the mission board, and they sent her to training um, to be, um, yeah, to be taught as a teacher and to get some missionary training. And then three months later, she was sent off to Nigeria to Calabar. So that was, no, that's what they called Calabar, that's now Nigeria. And um, it was there kind of where all the rivers are going in, that, on that coast. And this was in Edinburgh, where she went for missionary training. And um, then they assigned the station. So on the 5th of August in 1876, she set sail on the ship, the SS Ethiopia. And then on the ship, on the way there, um, she was traveling with Mr. and Mrs. Thompson. They were a missionary couple that was based in the station um, that she was going to go to. And so Mr. Thompson told Mary about the tribes that inhabited the coast of Calabar. Uh, they were called the Efics. They spoke Efic, that was the language. And in the past, the Efic people dealt with slave traders, which they brought from the inland to the coast, and then they traded them out to the slave traders. So the Efix acted as the middleman. Now, at this time, the slave trade was eradicated there, most of it. And so now the Efic people brought palm oil from the inland tribes and traded it with the Europeans. And um, Mary asked, like, what currency do you use? What, how, do, how do the Europeans pay them? And um, then the answer was alcohol. So, in fact, the ship that they were traveling onto was loaded down with rum and with gin that they would tra trade with these people for the palm oil that they would then use. So, this obviously troubled Mary, that she was going down on the ship that was also going to trade alcohol with the people. And then she asked more questions about the inland tribe, the people who brought the palm oil out. 
And um, then Mr. Thompson explained that um, Africa, you see all on the outside, that is kind of mapped out. This was one of the older maps. And he said that Africa is like a piece of bread. It has a thin crust on the outside, which they have been um, discovering. And the coast is well mapped out. There's many white settlements and the Portuguese started to travel around there from the 1400s. But more into the middle of Africa, what is it like? What are the people like? Who are they? What do, how do they think? Um, Mr. Thompson explained that they didn't know much about that. And um, even during the height of the slave trade, it was the coastal tribes who went inland and they captured the slaves from there and then brought them out. So many of the traders didn't even ever go in. Only a few brave people like David Livingston and some other missionaries actually went further in. They are the ones who mapped out much of what we have now. So Mary asked that surely the Calabar mission must know more about the Indian tribes. They must have gone in a bit more because they've been there since 1846. And so then Mr. Thompson explained to her that um, up till then, the white people had never been up more than five miles inland. And the furthest that the missionaries went into Calabar um, was 35 miles inland. And so she asked why, why not go further and bring the gospel there? And so we said that the natives often killed outsiders on site when they tried to do that. So Mary was stunned because the people who obviously needed the gospel message the most were the ones who killed anyone who brought it to them. And so right there, Mary says had set her sights on what seemed an impossible goal. She wanted to go inland to bring the gospel there where it had never been before. And then she wrote in her journal, Lord, the task is impossible for me, but not for thee. Lead the way and I will follow. And so then after 36 days on the ship, they arrived at Duke Town. This is some of the factories on the outside. And um, there was a mountain hill with the mission station on top of it, which earlier was used to um, bring human sacrifices, or not human sacrifices, um, to put the bodies of the slaves that were killed on there. And now there was a mission house there. And so arriving in Calabar was breathtaking for Mary, um, because the mission station that she always read about was now right there in front of her. And Mrs. Sutherland was a mother at the mission station. She took Mary around the town, um, and took her to different peoples, different huts, and so on, to get her um, to know everyone, to see what, what it's like. And Mary soon realized that things won't be as easy as she expected it to be, that it is, it's much more complex and much harder than she thought it would be. And so one of the things she saw in the first way going around was that almost everywhere people were drinking alcohol and many people were drunk. And then she asked Mrs. Sutherland, like, why don't you, what happens when you tell them that they shouldn't drink? Like, why don't you do something about that? And then Mrs. Sutherland said that the people's answer to her usually is that uh, the people on the ship are the people who bring the rum, and it's the same ship who bring the missionaries who tell them not to drink it. So that doesn't make sense to them, like, why, why then should they not? And so that was their thinking behind it which is, I think, also a lot of what you see in the, like with the Muslims in the Middle East and so on, they see Westerners living this lifestyle, but then it's the same people who bring them Christianity, and they think it's the same thing. Um, so sadly, that was also the case there, and much had to be done to explain to them there's a difference between Christians and Christians. Um, so yeah, Mary realized the task was much harder than they, she thought, and there were strange customs and rituals for everything the people did. Um, if someone died, it was mourned, uh, or people were mourning. And they also um, thought that it was a, a spell that was cast on that person, or someone had to take the blame for it. No one could just die, um, except when you're old. If you died at a young age, there must be someone else um, who have to take the punishment for that. And so they would have the witch doctor casting spells and everything to figure out who is responsible for the death of this person. And then they would go and revenge that person's death. And so yeah, there was many things like that that they encountered. And then Mary asked, um, how big was the church in this area? And so 
every Sunday, many of the people in the village of Duke Town uh, were seen at church. There was like over, over a thousand people coming to church. But only 174 of them were proclaiming that they actually believed in Christ. Um, and so that was over 30 years that the Calabar Mission Station um, was situated there with 20 missionaries that has gone there that actually passed away and 20 more of them that went away back to um, where they came from because they fell ill in Duke Town. Um, they couldn't stay there for long. So many missionaries came and gone over those 30 years, but um, there were few converts. And so um, many of them left either ill or discouraged. So. Um, Mary kept on feeling the call to go inland. This wasn't just an image of Duke Town. Um, but yeah, she found the call to go inland. But the mission station wouldn't allow women to venture um, further up alone. So for the first three months, she was bound to the mission station and had to attend all the endless formalities and meetings and afternoon teas with the government officials and formal dinners with captain officers and offices of the trading ships which anchored in the river because the mission station was kind of the civilization around there. They had all these formalities with all these formal people and Mary had to attend all of them, which was also restrictive for her. Um, she wanted to be out with the local people and she wanted to learn the language and get to know them and wanted to go inland. Um, and so after a few weeks of persistent debating or convincing, um, she convinced the reverend to allow her to go up to the um, more inland creek town, just a little bit above Duke Town where they were. And so she was warned about the deadly snakes that she can encounter, the crocodiles, the hippos, um, how to best avoid leopards. And then she finally went up river um, in a canoe with some of the men of Duke Town. And then there in Old Town, where they went, she met um, King Ayo who was, uh, so not Old, old Town, um, Creek Town, is where she went to Creek Town. And there she met King Ayo, who was one of the early converts um, of the mission station. And when she was young, her mother used to read of them um, about this king who, who came to faith. And um, you know, they would pray for him every Sunday. So Mary met this king and she told him, you know, my mother has been praying for you every Sunday since I can remember. And um, this king was, was amazed at it. He thought like someone over 4,000 miles away praying for him every Sunday. And so he asked if he can send letters to Mary's mother. And um, from that time on, they started corresponding to and fro. Mary's mother and this king, they were sending prayer letters and so on to each other. And so as Mary was moving around Creek, Creek Town uh, of Creek King Ayo, a lot of the children like looked at her and then they ran away. And she asked, like, why are they, why does they scare of me? Why are they running away? And uh, she was explained that it's because she has this red, red hair. She had long red hair when she first came there. And the children thought that her hair was on fire. <laughs> and so Mary was traveling in between Creek Town and Duke Town at the mission station. And uh, then in the next January, Mr. and Mrs. Anderson were. Um, veteran missionaries from that station and they returned from a furlough and um, they were quite strict with their routines and timekeeping and the rules at the mission um, timekeeping was one of Mary's weak points so she was given a job to do timekeeping at the mission station and she had to ring the bell every morning at 6 a.m. and every time for supper and so on and often she missed that and one morning she mistook the moon for the rising sun and at 3am she went to run the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so people were not impressed with her. And the rule there was like, if you are late, then you must suffer. So she often missed suffer. And then as the, these missionaries came, they set a routine for her and for the mission station. And um, soon her life fell into a routine. She taught school during the week. In the weekends, she visited the people of Duke Town or she went to King Ayo and um, visited the people in Creek Town. Um, but she found that there was something missing because the townspeople made a big show of going to church. And still they could not memorize or remember 
the Bible passages and the stories that she was teaching them. And they still worshipped idols, like they would come on Sunday to church, and then the rest of the week they would worship these idols. And they still saw nothing wrong with human sacrifice, they saw nothing wrong with owning slaves, they saw nothing wrong with killing slaves. And um, over time, Mary realized that uh, a lot of the people, not all of them, the comments not, but a lot, most of the people told the missionaries what they thought and what they knew the missionaries wanted to hear. So they, um, they behaved kind of the way they knew the missionaries expected them to, but they kept to their own faith and their own religions um, and rituals. Um, just so that they could keep, like, they could build a good relationship with the missionaries and could keep on trading with the people and um, keep on learning at the school. They kind of obeyed and did what the missionaries wanted them to do. And I think much like that was also when the Muslim slave traders went into Africa. A lot of the people who turned to Islam did that, I think, for benefits of trading with the Muslims. And after time, like, that resulted into a mixture of uh, animism combined with Islam, which is a lot still now a lot of the people in Africa, it's a lot of the religions over there in Northern Africa, um, people kind of combined the two. And so Mary continued to help at the mission station and continued to teach in Duke Town. And still the longing to go inland grew stronger and stronger. And she felt a bit trapped. She was so close to the field that she was praying for and that was pressing on her heart. But um, she knew that it would take a miracle for her to be allowed to go inland. So she prayed for that, um, for God to open a door for her into the interior. And then instead, she got malaria and she was so ill that they said they can't do anything for her. She would have to go back to Dundee and she would probably die the way back there. Um, yeah, back to Scotland. But she didn't. Um, back in Scotland, she got better and she went on speaking to us. And now when people asked her what she wanted to do when she returned to Africa, she told them the truth. Um, she told them she wants to go inland where the gospel had not been heard before. And she wants to work among the natives who have never heard of Christ, never heard of God. And the Okoyong people burdened her heart the most. It was a tribal event. And she spoke about that. She told about the Okoyong people. So after 16 months, the Dundee Mission Board agreed that it was time for her to go back um, into Calabar. And then she wrote to the board. She begged them to allow her to now please let her go in and on the way, on the ship back, she traveled along with uh, missionary um, Reverend Goldie and his wife. And he um, wrote down a dictionary for the Efek language. And um, he wrote also translation books for the Efek language. So Mary read a lot of that and educated herself more on the native language. And also she poured out her heart to him. She told her of her longing um, to go inward. And he said he would see what he can do to help her um, to do that. And so he must have said or done something right because when she came back to Duke Town, um, the original mission station, she was told that she was assigned to go out to work in Old Town. And she would be working alone and expected to, um, yeah, to take control of the task herself. And so this is where Duke Town was in an old town. It's not much further up, but it was more inland. And so she was ecstatic because it was one step closer to the inland people, one step closer to the Okoyong, which is higher up there where the rivers cross. And so this is Old Town. And the people of Old Town actually had a grudge against the British um, because when, um, when the mission station first started, some of the missionaries went there. And um, the British law also went out there. They wanted to suppress the people of the British law, or not suppress, they wanted to teach the people the law, basically. And um, the chief of Old Town in that time uh, was about to pass away. And so the custom was to then order all your wives and slaves and everyone who wanted to go with you into the afterlife um, to be killed with you. And so, when he died, a lot, of, a lot of people were killed along with him. And that made the British consul very upset at 
everyone from Old Town, and they um, gave instructions for the missionaries to leave Old Town, and then they sent in gunboats along the river, um, which was the Old Town was next to the river. So they sent in gunboats and they basically fired um, down on Old Town. And so much of the village was eradicated and um, destroyed and burned down. But now it was 33 years later when Mary Slessor came. And one of the old small um, missionary huts that was there previously, she actually went and um, she went to stay in that hut. And so first the people did not trust her. Um, but yeah, through time she gave them medical care and um, started to teach them Bible stories. She started to teach them how to read and build a relationship with, with them. And one morning she woke from a baby crying on the doorpost and she went out and picked him up. And uh, the lady who was helping her around the house and so on was not surprised at all. She, she just said, you're a God woman, the babies will be brought to you. And that is what happened from that time on. Like. Mary had lots of children she had to take care of until the day she died. There was always babies around her, children, young children that people brought to her. Um, because human life was not valued very highly in Calabar. Um, no one could be bothered if um, another woman passed away and now they, they just also killed the baby. They didn't want to take care of her. If a slave mother died, all her children were killed and buried along with her. And. Um, there was also a practice that they had, um, or a belief that they had about twins, was that at least one of the children was believed to be a monster. And so twins were seized, their backs were broken. Um, they were crushed into a calabash or a water pot, and then they were taken out. And not by the doorway, but through a hole that was broken in the back of a hut. Because it was believed that if they went through the doorway, then now the doorway will also be cursed, and so on. And so it was also believed that the mother of the twins were cursed. So, life was not very, like, the sanctity of life was not there at all. And um, Mary tried to rescue as many of these twins as possible. And then one day, one, uh, one of her helpers came running to her and told her that a bit higher up in the village, there's two twins that's about to be killed, about to be taken out of the back of that. Um, it was actually in the evening. So Mary ran out there, no one wanted to help her. Um, or to go along with her to save them, but she ran out there, she, in, in the dark, she basically grabbed the twins from them and um, ran out of the hall in the back of the hut and just chased away. And people tried to chase behind her, but she just ran into the forest and hit, um, yeah, hid in the jungle and then they later left her with the twins. Because they believed if, um, if the twins were staying alive, then that curse would still kind of stay alive, if that makes sense. So the family would actually try to track down the twins and kill them. And um, one Sunday Mary went out to do, uh, to bring messages and then she came back and the brother of the twins, so it was a brother and a sister that she saved that evening, the brother was killed. And um, they were just in time to, to stop them from also killing the girl. And so Mary resolved to keep this girl, um, she named her Jamie and she resolved to keep her with her all the time. And um, yeah, then there was many more children brought to her and she realized she needed help from another missionary or someone else. So she went with Janie back to, down to Duke Town. Um, and then she, she realized that at this mission station right now she couldn't get any help because um, Mrs. Sutherland and Mrs. Mm, the other missionary lady that were there, they both fell ill and passed away. And so um, many of the people at the mission station, they were ill or ill, passed away now. So instead of getting help um, to take back to Old Town, Mary actually also felt ill. And she was sent back to Scotland for recovery. And then she took Janie with her. Um, and then this time in Scotland, they went around speaking at a lot of churches. And every, a lot more people came because now they could also see Janie. And they saw, well, um, this, they, they grew an interest in the work that um, was happening in Calabar. So there were many more people sending help to Calabar, many more people um, going out as missionaries to Calabar, and um, many more people raised to pray for Calabar. And so then when Mary got better and 
was done with all the speaking tours, she went back. And this time she went to Creek Town, um, where King Ayo was living. And yeah, there she also taught the Bible, taught the children um, how to read and write, and um, served there for a while. Um, oh, I forgot to say that when she was in Scotland, her family, her family got ill and her one sister passed away. Now it was only her mother and her one sister left. So she moved them out of um, Dundee into um, a cottage more outside with more clean air and so on, um, and asked one of her friends to take care of them. And then when she was now working with King Ayo, um, she received news that her family has passed away, both her mother and her sister. So now she had no family left in Scotland. And um, in the same year, the Germany took over in Cameroon, which was no, just here next to Nigeria. Germany went and took over the people there and they forced the missionaries to go out. Um, they took over the mission stations and schools. Um, no, they basically wanted to colonialize there. And so the British consul in Nigeria was now concerned that Germany would come and try to take over Calabar as well. And they wanted to have Calabar. So they felt the best way. Sorry, can you say? Okay. They showed, felt the best way to secure the Calabar region was by going inland. And this would mean taking land with force and it would create barriers and superstition towards the missionaries if the missionaries go in later. So Mary Sessa, along with many of the other missionaries, begged, please don't, please don't send the soldiers and um, you know, the British troops inland. Rather, let us go in first and build relationships with these tribes. And so Mary's heart was still in Okoyong. She was still praying for them many years later now. And um, she asked again to the mission board if she can go there. And now they decided to allow her to go. And so this news was perfect timing for Mary because she was praying for an open door to Okoyong for more than five years now. And um, now she also received the news of her family who passed away. And it was the time when Germany wanted to take over. So, um, yeah, that was like the right timing in God's eyes to send her out. And then in August 1888, she was given a piece of land in Opion among the Ikengi um, tribe or with the Ikengi people. And the day she left from Old Town or from Creek Town to the, the tribe that she was staying with, King Eo and them, they gave her a nice canoe and people to take her out. But they were at war with the people of Okoyong. The two chiefs were at war and often they would come people from one side or the other to um, kill some of them and so on. They would steal from one another and so on. Um, so they were certain that um, Mary would be killed by the Okoyong people. So they treated it as a funeral. They dressed in mourning clothing and they were crying. As she went up, um, they, they thought it was a funeral that they are now having with her still being alive and being sent up. So, Mary thought it was quite strange, but she went. And um, then once she arrived in Opryon, the people was very superstitious towards her, um, very skeptical. And very, very slowly but surely, she started to nurse people, started to help them, and they started to trust her. And she, what helped much was that she by now understood their language. They were also speaking Ethic, so she understood much of their language. And then, um, once she felt like most of the medical me me needs were met, not needs were need, um, <laughs> she started to teaching them book, as the people called it, like she's going to teach us book. And it's like basically learning how to read. The people were very excited, and the whole village showed up for their first reading lesson. Um, all they knew about reading was that it involved speaking to a piece of paper. Um, but then within a couple of weeks, most of the class dropped out because reading was just too much hard work for them. They thought, ah, oh, they would go for a few lessons and then be able to read. So they all dropped out and went back to what they were doing. Um, so Mary was left with only a few people who were interested. And funny enough, she was left with most of the slave children because all the slaves, the owners of the slaves said, well, we want your children one day to be able to read. So all the slave children was forced 
to attend the reading lessons. And um, they were basically the only ones that she had in her class. So, yeah, a lot of the people went back to, uh, or, or even they were like drinking and, um, yeah, just not living very God-honoring lives, basically. Um, but all these setbacks did not set, like, it did not break Mary's hope and her, like, will and her trust in God that, yeah, that she has the task there. And she wrote that, um, Blessed is the man and woman who is able to serve cheerfully in the second rank, which is a big test. And she felt like she was serving and she couldn't really see the results, but yeah, that she was being tested. And she thought it, she saw it as a blessing. And um, no, just, yes, just her and some of the children she took care of. Um, I don't know what it's all so sad. Yeah, I don't know which one is Jamie actually. Um, she often was called to travel to the villages around um, because they knew now that she was able to help with medical needs and so on. And she often traveled to the village of Ifaka, which was 30 miles north, um, where the chief asked her to teach people book. So in that village, the people were very eager to have reading lessons and um, she also translated many of the Scottish hymns and English hymns into Efik. And the people really enjoyed um, singing along with that, playing drums and worshipping along with that. Well, they did not, not all of them were converts, so a lot of them were singing along just for singing along. But those who were converts, they were truly worshipping along and um, loved hearing the Bible stories, which also translated into their language. And, um, by now she had long given up wearing boots along the like muddy jungle roads because it would fill up with water and mud all the time. And so she was wearing walking barefoot and her um, soles were as tough as leather by this time. And so she lived and ate um, like the people did. She tried to get rid of all her customs and so on to be able to speak as much to the people and fit as much into their culture. Um, as possible. And so her only luxury was tea, which she could not give up. And she, by now she also cut her hair short because that was practical. And this picture is actually wrong because she never wore a hat. Um, but yeah. Then there was a day when she was um, facing her first trial with um, spiritual warfare with the Okayong people, or the first one that was also like very physical as well. Um, so by now Mary knew most of the people in Okuyong and she knew what was going on in the social life of this town. And so one evening after Bible study, um, she heard the people in the law hut or the, the justice hut, it was called the Palabar hut, um, they were basically shouting and screaming, playing drums and dancing. And she ran to see what is going on. She hoped that it was not one of the like rituals again. Um, but it was. There was um, a warrior wearing a Jaguar costume and there was a pot of boiling oil and next to it on the floor was a woman whose legs and hands were tied. She was lying there. And um, all these people were like working each themselves up and the warrior was about to scoop oil and um, to pour it over the woman. And so she screamed and then Mary ran in between the warrior and the woman and she tried to stop him and so everyone was shocked everyone the people gasped and the music stopped um, they were like did the white mark that's what they called her did she really now just dare to interfere with our tribal justice and um, they were just like looking there was tension they were looking like what's happening now and so the warrior glared down at Mary and she stood still she glared right back blocking his way to the woman and um, then he, he started doing these war shouts and dancing towards her now with the boiling oil. And Mary prayed silently as he came closer. And then he came, they came face to face and they, he couldn't do, the warrior couldn't do much else than either hit her with the uh, oil now or step away. And so he, with a shout of disgust, basically threw the oil on the floor and he stepped away. And now this was for the crowd who, who's like, their tribal justice was law, that was 
um, everything to them that was there. It was so inter intervened, I think it's right word, intertwined with their um, spiritual worshipping and so on. To them, this was all spiritual. And um, so they were so shocked. Um, the white man stood up against one of their warriors and she won. And so Mary pleaded to Chief Eden now to free the woman that was on the ground, but he was so angry at her, he ignored her. Um, and so Mary just went down, she loosened the woman, and um, yeah, everyone was shocked and kind of dispersed. And so for days the whole village was in shock. How could a white woman defy the power of their customs and of their um, spirits? And so was her religion more powerful than theirs, is what they were wondering. So both religions believed in an all-powerful and an all-knowing creator, and the Africans called him Abasi. And they believed Abasi wanted them to do cruel things and to be governed by superstitions and magic. And now they started to wonder whether they might be mistaken. Um, perhaps Abasi was more like the god Mary always spoke about. Um, not only powerful, but also good and kind, instead of cruel and evil, as they thought. Um, so yeah, this fort captivated the whole tribe, and men and women, slaves and freemen, all of them debated this question endlessly, and the story spread from village to village. And so, one of the close-by villages, um, the, the chief there was ill, and he sent down for Mary to come and help him. And Chief Eden, he said to her basically, do not go, because if you go from our village here, you go to help that chief, and that chief pass away, um, then they will come and revenge it on us, because um, yeah, because they would believe that it is spirit sent out from us or a curse that is sent out from us. It will result in his death. So Mary was told not to go, and then she was confused. Should she should she not? What if the village get killed? And she prayed about it, and then the next morning she decided no, she must go. So she went, and when she arrived there, there was like um, all the women that were encamped that would be killed when he died. Um, and then there was all the, um, what do you call it, the witch doctors, bones and so on, lying around the hut where the chief was in with smoke and so on. And the chief was there lying very ill. And then um, she ordered all the women to be freed and the witch doctor to go out and to take all of his like, stuff with him. And then she prayed and she made soup for the uh, chief and gave that to him along with water and he got healed <laughs> after three days. And so that was, yeah, that was just joy for them. Um, and when she came back to Chief Eden, he was also like very surprised and very happy. Um, okay, there's some stories I wanted to tell that I'm not going to get time for, so Afterwards, you can come if someone's more interested in some of that. Um, but yeah, there was a time when a missionary from Duke Town came, uh, Charles Morrison. He was highly educated, and he came and often visited Mary at the mission station there. And um, he he engaged to her. They got to know each other, and she said, "Yeah, um, she'll marry him." But then, like, only if he can come and join her with her work in. Ikengi, um, because she felt she had a calling there. And so when, she, when they said that to the mission board, the mission board said, um, no, like, he has a calling there, so if, if you want to get married, then you'll have to go to back to Duke Town. And so for some time, like, that really bothered Mary. She was not sure what should she do. But she prayed about it, and then in the end, they decided, okay, rather not. She has a calling there, he has a calling there. So... Uh, the engagement was called off. And then the British consul wanted to gain more control higher up in Nigeria, and they asked around who would be the right person to be made um, the law keeper of Britain. Okay. And so everyone said it would be Mary Slessor, that she would be the best um, person to advise them with law. So um, first Mary said, no, I'm not a politician, I can't do that. And um, then she she met with um, she met with the people and they told her <laughs> she met with the people and um, they told her the British people now if you don't go and bring the law then someone else will um, will have to be sent out 
So she agreed to become the uh, vice consul there in, uh, of Britain in Nigeria. And so she managed to bring peace between many of the chiefs and um, yeah, many of the laws and customs that they held to was eradicated. And then at the end of her life, one of her supporters from Scotland um, sent her 50 pounds and told her to spend it on herself. And then she wrote back that, um, dear friend, I need nothing. My everyone is met and supplied for without asking. And so little did this friend actually know that Mary didn't own anything. Um, she had no possessions and nor did she want any. And then she, she continued um, serving as the vice consul, moving around from place to place, eradicating a lot of laws. And at the end of her life, she was living in a town called Use. And then early one morning, um, in January 13, 1915, she was in a grave and, uh, not in a grave, in, on a bed. And <laughs> hopefully not in a grave. She said, oh, Alvasi, which was ethic for um, Lord, please deliver me. And then, then she passed away and then she went to her grave bed. <laughs> and so the United Presbyterian Church of Scotland sent out a huge slab of granite to mark her grave. And um, Charles Owens, he, he was one of the men who helped her um, with building some of her, the houses and so on in the mission station. And he said um, it would take more than a slab of rock like that to keep her down. Belonging <laughs> 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 to abandon um, everything and to reach others with the uh, love of Christ was a shining example to many people and many more people were called to, to Calabar. And she said, what shall I do with golden crowns? Uh, no, actually it should be starry crowns. I was tired when I wrote that. Starry crowns except to cast them at his feet. And um, just one last quote of her also was that prayer is the greatest power God has put into our hands for service. Praying is harder than doing. At least I find it so, but the dynamic lies that way to advance the kingdom. And so Mary knew what doing hard things can be like, um, but she said prayer is harder. And I think that is because she understood what it, what it really means. Often we take prayer too lightly, but it is in prayer that we can come and ask God to rid us of ourselves and fill us with the dependence on Him, strength um, from Him. And that is why prayer is the greatest power God has put into our hands. Knowing that it's in prayer to God and not acting on our own, that God's kingdom is at once. That, yeah, that is what she said nicely here. Yeah. So we must pray with the knowledge that God had already won the battle. And the weaker we are, the more His power can be shown, as was done through the life. And in Dr. Hammond's book, The Greatest Teacher of Missions, there's a very nice chapter um, on Mary's essay, very inspiring to read.